Please take your Bibles and turn to the last book of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. We are kind of in the uh, home stretch here in the book of Revelation. We've come to the 19th chapter, and this morning we'll be reading uh, verses 1 through 10. Revelation 19, beginning at verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. And I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord God, Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus, worship God. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Hallelujah. You ever said that before? Maybe the uh, traffic jam cleared up. Maybe you found something you were looking for. Maybe your team finally won a game. For whatever reason, you exclaimed, Hallelujah. Hallelujah is a word that comes from two, two Hebrew words. Hallel, which means praise, and Yah, which is short for Yahweh, which means the Lord. Hallelujah, children, very simply, means praise the Lord. You probably notice as I read these 10 verses that hallelujah comes up again and again. Four times in, in 10 verses, there is an exclamation from heaven, hallelujah. Now, why is heaven saying hallelujah? Why is heaven shouting, praise the Lord? It's not because some first world problem of theirs was solved. It was for a far more significant reason than that. And that's really where we want to focus our attention this morning, the cry of hallelujah from heaven and, and the reason heaven exclaims Praise the Lord. Two reasons. First of all, for justice. And secondly, for communion. 
Heaven cries hallelujah for justice, and heaven cries hallelujah for communion. Chapter begins by telling us that John hears what, what sounds like the roar of a great multitude in heaven. Now, if you've been here through our study of Revelation, this, this idea of a great multitude should be somewhat familiar to you. Uh, you might remember, it was many chapters ago, but you might remember back in chapter 7, John there sees a, a great multitude of people. In fact, children, it's such a big group of people that no one can even count this group. It's innumerable people from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. And this great multitude is standing before the throne of God. They're they're wearing white robes and they're holding palm branches, branches of victory in their hands. And and this is a reminder to us that the, the church of Jesus Christ is truly universal, The church of Jesus Christ is is made up of people from all across the globe. You know, there are are some things in life that are found only in certain places. An example of that is um, In-N-Out Burger. You're going, oh no, another In-N-Out Burger illustration. Um, But we're fortunate we have In-N-Out here in our state. Um, But In-N-Out is only in like five states. and, And I don't think anything east of Texas That's not the case with the church. The church is not like in and out. The church isn't only on the West Coast. The church isn't only in the United States. The the church isn't only in English-speaking countries. The, The church is made up of people from every nation and every tribe and every language. And and really, when you think about this, we really should appreciate the the diversity of the church, the diversity of God's people. You know, we're thankful that that the Lord has blessed us with this facility. We're very thankful for that. But the fact of the matter is that that not every church in this world worships in a building like we do. We have a certain way that we worship. We have a certain what we call liturgy or order of service. But not every church worships like we do. Every church has their own take on the phrase psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And, and there are Christians throughout the world who have different understandings of baptism and church government and eschatology. But, but one day, Revelation 19 reminds us, one day we will all be in heaven together. And, and so John hears this, this loud multitude of people made up of all ethnicities, all nationalities, all languages, all consumer preferences. And notice what they exclaim in verses 1 and 2. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. There's a connection here with Revelation chapter 6. Back in chapter 6, the the martyrs in heaven cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world? How long before you avenge our blood for what they have done to us? In other words, the martyrs in heaven right now 
are, are crying out, Lord, when will you bring justice? When will you bring justice to these people who have harmed and, and persecuted your church and who have even killed your people? That's where we are right now in history. We're still waiting. Church is still being persecuted. Estimates are that one out of every seven Christians worldwide are persecuted today. One out of every seven. In Asia, that number jumps to two out of every five. Two out of every five people in Asia are in some way persecuted for their faith. And the number of Christians killed for their faith annually just keeps going up every year. 80% more Christians have been killed already in 2023 than were killed already in all of 2018. My point is that the church on earth and the church in heaven is still praying the prayer of Revelation 6, Lord, how long? How long until justice is served? But chapter 19 tells us that one day that prayer will be answered. And you'll notice two things in verse 2. First of all, God will judge the great prostitute. Remember, the great prostitute is also known as Babylon the Great. It it represents this evil world system. It represents this fallen evil age. And, And here we are again reminded that this evil world system, which has corrupted the earth, which has trampled on God's truth, which has called evil good and good evil, which has perverted justice, and which has lured away the hearts of so many people, this evil world system will be judged. This evil world system will come to an end. And secondly, God will avenge the blood of his people. You might remember a a number that I gave you all the way back in chapter 6, the number of of Christians who have lost their lives in the last 2,000 years, 70 million people. 70 million Christians have been killed over the last 2,000 years. Now, in comparison's sake, we we live in the state of California. We live in the most populous state in our nation. And the population of our state is about 40 million people. 70 million Christians have been put to death for their faith in the last 2,000 years. Brothers and sisters, the day is coming when God will avenge the blood of every one of those 70 million people. And then in verse 3, this this great multitude cries out again for the second time, Hallelujah, the smoke goes from her forever and ever. This is a reminder that the judgment of the wicked will never end. It will never end. Now there are some people who are troubled by this. Maybe you, yourself, this morning, you were troubled by this thought. Why, Why would God punish people for all eternity? Why not just, you know, annihilate them? That's why some people have embraced what's known as annihilationism. Annihilationism is is basically the idea that that at the final judgment, all the wicked will just be destroyed. Satan and the fallen angels and, and all unbelievers will, they'll simply cease to exist. But, but that really flies in the face of the, the Bible's teaching that the punishment of the wicked will be an eternal punishment. 
As it says in our text, the, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. You see, God's majesty and, and God's glory is infinite. And, and sin committed against an infinite God must be given an infinite punishment. So this massive chorus in heaven breaks forth in praise. They, they give praise to God for his judgment. They give praise to God that this evil world system has been judged. They give praise to God that the blood of the martyrs has been avenged. And, and I want to say to all of us this morning, it is very important that we remember this. It's very important that, that we, we keep this scene in Revelation 19 firmly etched in our minds because God has inscribed it for us in his word and he's given it to us for a purpose. You've heard me say to you before that not only must we understand scripture, but we must also apply scripture. So we must take what, what God is telling us here and we must remember these things for our own benefit. And, and there are three reasons I want to give you why we must remember this scene. First, we need to remember this when we are discouraged and when we think evil is winning. You ever feel like that? You ever get discouraged at the world in which we live? You ever get disgusted at our politicians? You ever get righteously angry at some of the laws that are being made in our country? And you ever feel like just giving up and saying, what hope is there? Evil is winning. You know, there were people in the Bible who felt like that. There was a a man named Asaph who wrote a psalm, Psalm 73, and he felt that way. He said in Psalm 73, as for me, my, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. The wicked seem to prosper. The wicked seem to get away with it. Unrighteousness seems to prevail. But did you notice what it says in verse 1 of our passage, Revelation 19? It says, salvation belongs to our God. God will save us. God will deliver us from this evil age. God will ultimately vindicate his cause. He will ultimately vindicate his people. Righteousness will ultimately prevail. And so we have to keep this scene in our minds when we do get discouraged. Remember the end. Remember where everything is headed. Secondly, we also need to remember this when we are tempted to put too much stock and too much meaning in the things of this life. Now, let's be honest. It's, it's easy, even as Christians, even as believers, for our hearts to be drawn away by the things of this world. As I said to you a couple of weeks ago, the, the things of the world are often so very attractive they, they promise so much. They seem to be so wonderful. They seem to be so glorious. But notice again verse 1 of Revelation 19. Glory belongs to our God. Brothers and sisters, God is the most glorious one. 
God is, is to be treasured above all else. He is infinitely greater than anything that this world can offer to us. And, and by God's grace, he has caused us to see that. But when we are tempted to be lured away, when we are tempted to put so much meaning and so much stock in the things of this life, remember who God is. Remember that all glory belongs to him. Things of this world that are so attractive and seem so wonderful, they're not going to last. And then third, we, we need to remember this scene when we are tempted to think that this world has great power over the church. You watch the news on TV or you read the news, I mean, it doesn't look good. It's discouraging. We don't know how much more difficult things will get in our own country. We know that this evil age wants to suppress the truth of the gospel. And then there are nations in the world where, where God's people are, are really suffering persecution, imprisonment, and, and death. The empires of this world seem to have such great power. But what's verse 1 say? Power belongs to our God. Brothers and sisters, God is sovereign over the nations. God is sovereign over the human rulers of this world. He's sovereign over President Biden. Sovereign over our governor. He's sovereign over all world leaders. And, and, and they will not stay in power one second longer than God has decreed. God is in control. It's important we remember these things. It's important that we not just, you know, fill our heads and and understand, yeah, that's what Revelation 19 teaches. It's important that these great truths comfort us and assure us. As you go through trials in life, as you have health difficulties, if you have relationship troubles, as other things in your life weigh you down, remember who God is. Remember where you are headed. Remember that you belong to him. And and these things should should move us to worship him, right? That's what happens in our passage in verse 4. It says, the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. The fact that salvation and glory and power belong to God should move us. It should move our hearts. It should move our, our worship. It should move us to a heartfelt worship of God. And, and one day... All of heaven will shout, hallelujah. The great prostitute is no more. The Lord has vindicated all those who stood for Christ and and who sealed their fate by trusting in Christ even to the point of death. As one commentator says, on judgment day, believers will rejoice at the funeral of Babylon. One day we're going to go to a funeral and we're going to be glad. We're going to rejoice that this evil world is no more. And then, verse 5, another voice comes from the throne and says, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. There is injustice in our world. 
The wicked are rewarded, the righteous are punished. We scratch our heads and we say, how, how can this happen? How can this take place? These are consequences of sin and evil in our world, but one day God will do justice. One day God will make all wrongs right. May not happen in this life, but it will happen in the life to come. And, and we, can, we can trust him and we can know for certain that that will happen one day. And that will be a wonderful day when we gather with all of our fellow believers in heaven and we all say hallelujah for God's justice. Secondly, though, there is also hallelujah for communion, for intimacy. Once again, the, the voice of the great multitude cries out and, and John tells us this time it's, it's so loud, it's like the roar of many waters. You've been to waterfalls before, been to Niagara Falls, loud. He also says it's like the sound of, of mighty peals of thunder. It's not 55 people up in heaven singing. It's not this small, tiny, little group of people huddled together, singing together. You know, from the beginning of time, you think about this. Go all, children, go all the way back to Adam. All the way back to Adam, from the beginning of time, God has been calling people to himself from all over the world. And so think about this scene in heaven that's being painted for us. Adam and Eve are here. Abraham is here. Moses is here. Ruth. Rahab, David, Daniel, Peter, Paul, Augustine, Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, they're all here. All of your believing loved ones are here. You yourself are here. All of God's elect, not one was lost, and they're all in heaven worshiping the God who had saved them. And, and John says, it's so loud, it sounds like thunder. I did a little research this week on the loudness of thunder, and here's what I discovered. If you were to drive up to, uh, let's say, Sacramento Airport, and you were to go up to uh, 747 that's just about to take off, and you were to stand there with your, don't do this, by the way, if you were to stand there with your head inside the engine, Definitely don't do that. But if you did that, it would be a 165 decibel roar. That's really loud. You've heard jet engines before. Imagine how loud the engine on a 747 is. Well, if you were to get near the source of thunder, the decibel level of that is 200 decibels. Louder than a jet engine. All of this is to say that the worship of heaven is loud. And all of heaven is, is crying out, hallelujah. Why? Notice, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. 
See, brothers and sisters, one day we are going to sing hallelujah, not only because God's justice has been done, not only because the great prostitute has been judged, not only because the blood of the martyrs has been avenged, but one day we will sing hallelujah in heaven because, first of all, God rules and reigns over all things. Did you notice that? Now, unfortunately, the, the ESV and, and some other translations kind of botches the translation here. If you look at the end of verse 6, it says, For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. But, but based on the original language, based on the Greek, which here is called an ingressive aorist verb. I know you didn't come to church to hear that this morning. But it's an ingressive aorist verb. It should be translated, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, has begun to reign. Heaven cries out, hallelujah, the Lord has begun to reign. Now you say, that doesn't sound very good, because it sounds like before that, God wasn't reigning. It sounds like up until this point, God isn't king. Do you you mean that we have to wait till the day of judgment for God to reign over all things? No, that's not the point. God has always been and always will be the sovereign king over all. But the point that's being made in the original language is that now that the great prostitute has been judged, now that the present evil age is no more, God has put all of his enemies away. And there will be no more evil and no more opposition to his rule. Those who harass and persecute God's people will no longer do that. God's truth will no longer be scorned. The gospel will no longer be mocked. The sin in my own heart will be no more. All opposition to his kingly rule will be gone. One of the petitions that we pray in the Lord's Prayer is, your kingdom come. What are we praying for when we pray that? Listen to what the Heidelberg Catechism says in Lord's Day 48. It says, your kingdom come means... Rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. Preserve and increase your church. Destroy the devil's work. Destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. Do all this until your kingdom comes fully when you will be all in all. That's the point that the original language is making in Revelation 19. God is reigning now, and he's always been the king. But there's coming a day when his kingdom will come fully. No more opposition, no more sin, no more evil. And and the wonderful thing is that we will enjoy perfect communion and perfect fellowship with the triune God. And secondly, we're also told here not only of God's rule, we're also told of the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is where it's, it's kind of important to understand the original context. Um, a first century engagement and wedding was a lot different than a 21st century engagement and wedding. 
In, in that day, in the first century, what happened is this. The fathers of, of two families would determine to bring a couple together in marriage. This would typically happen in childhood. Now, this sounds very strange to our modern-day ears, but, but that's what they did in that culture. In, in fact, there are around 20 million arranged marriages in our world today. 90% of all marriages in India are arranged. Again, it seems very strange to us today, but it's common in our world. It was also very common in the first century. So first of all, the, the fathers would determine to bring two of their children together in marriage. And then second, when those children were a bit older, the girl would be a, likely a teenager and the boy a bit older than that, the couple would be considered to be betrothed. And this betrothal stage typically lasted for one year. And, and once the couple entered this betrothal stage, it was absolutely binding. And, and during this, this year-long betrothal stage, the couple didn't live together they didn't sleep together. They lived under separate roofs, even though their, their relationship was seen as legally binding. And, and the only way that you could get out of a betrothal was through a legal divorce. Well, at the end of that, that 12-month period, the wedding would take place. And the wedding celebration would normally last for about seven days. And so keep that picture in mind when you're thinking about the marriage supper of the Lamb. What's being pictured here is this relationship between Christ and his church. And I love the way that William Hendrickson puts it in his commentary on Revelation. He says, in Christ, the bride was chosen from eternity. Throughout the entire Old Testament dispensation, the wedding was announced. Next, the Son of God assumed our flesh and blood, and the betrothal took place. The price, the dowry, was paid on Calvary. Now, after an interval which in the eyes of God is but a little while, the bridegroom returns and they celebrate the wedding of the Lamb. Christian, God chose you from eternity. If, if you want your mind blown, think about that. God chose you from eternity. And then he announced that he would send the one who would redeem you. And then he came. Jesus came and paid the price of your salvation on the cross. And now he's preparing a place for you. And one day he's going to come. He's going to take you to himself where you and all of God's people will be for all eternity. That's what awaits us. Now, weddings are joyous occasions. We have, we have three weddings coming up in our church in the next couple of months, and, and obviously at all three, people will rejoice. But imagine how great the rejoicing will be when Jesus returns. Imagine the, imagine the joy that will overwhelm you at the marriage supper of the Lamb. One day, you will see Face to face, the very one who redeemed you. You will see the, the very one who came from the glories of heaven and took on human nature in order to live and to suffer and to die for you. You will see the very one who came to give you eternal life. I, we, we can't even really imagine the joy of that day. The joy that will flood our hearts 
when he comes for us. Now, if you look at verse 9, you'll see something very interesting that the angel says to John. He says, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It talks about an invitation. You ever been offended that you didn't get invited to something? Maybe it was um, a party that you heard about and, and you thought to yourself, I can't believe I didn't get invited to that. Maybe it was a wedding and you were waiting for the invitation and never came. You were disappointed. There's a sense in which everyone has been invited to this wedding. The gospel goes out to all people. And you remember what Jesus says. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus freely invites all people to come to him. This isn't just an invitation for the elect. This gospel goes out to all people. It goes out to all people this morning. It goes out to all people. And this invitation demands a response from you. It demands your RSVP. Have you repented of your sin? Have you confessed your sin and embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior? If so, you can be assured that that you will one day be here in this glorious scene. You will be singing with all of heaven hallelujahs to your God and your Savior. We will sing one day, hallelujah, Lord, for your justice. Hallelujah, that evil has been put away. Hallelujah, that that we are with you for all eternity. And it's not because we're better or brighter than other people. It's because of his grace. It's because he gave to us what we don't deserve. And so I pray for us this morning that the Revelation 19 doesn't make us proud. It doesn't make us arrogant. It doesn't make us drive out of this parking lot and Look at people who maybe didn't go to church and think, well, you're not as good as we are. I pray that Revelation 19 humbles us. I pray that it makes us realize how much grace we have received so that one day we will be in heaven. We will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will be with our Savior. But if you're not trusting in Christ, I warn you, Scripture warns you, The terrifying judgment is coming upon all who do not believe. And I urge you this day to flee to Jesus. Find rest for your soul. Find rest from the wrath that is to come. And then, Christian, rejoice. Rejoice that this is what awaits you when you will see your Savior with your very eyes. That be a wonderful day. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we 
Thank you for both the comfort and the warnings of your word. Father, we pray that this passage would humble us today, would cause us to, again, thank you and praise you for your incredible grace to us. Lord, we, we know that we don't deserve to be in your presence. We know that we deserve your judgment, and yet we thank you that Jesus took that judgment for us so that we might be in your loving presence forever. Pray this morning for those we know who don't know that comfort, who either are ignorant of eternal matters or don't care or are downright hostile. Lord, we pray that you would work in their hearts and we pray that you would use even us to bring the good news to them that they, by the work of your spirit, may repent of their sin and trust in Christ. Lord, we long for that day when our Savior will return and when all evil will be put away and we will be with you. We thank you and we praise you for your grace in Jesus' name.